Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. My name is Emily Friedlander, and you're listening to Episode 3 of The Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. This week at Thump, we're doing a theme week called Dancing vs. the State, a series of articles on nightlife's complicated relationship to law enforcement, past and present. One theme that's been coming up a lot in our coverage is safety, and specifically issues around keeping people safe at nightlife events where drugs are present. To that end, we're very happy to welcome two special guests onto the show today who are here to speak with us about harm reduction. Does everyone want to introduce themselves? Hi, I'm Stephanie Jones. I'm the Director of Audience Development at the Drug Policy Alliance. I'm also the director of a campaign called Safer Partying. Hi, I'm Kelly Green. I'm the founder and the chapter director for New York Dance Safe. I'm Anna Cogirado, the news editor at Thump. And I'm Emily Friedlander, the editor-in-chief of Thump. Would you guys be able to tell us what harm reduction is? Harm reduction. Okay, well, this is a philosophy that sort of accepts that drugs are present and they're going to be used and that our goal ought to be to reduce the harm associated with that drug use as much as possible. So it gives people concrete strategies, you know, given that they will be using drugs to keep themselves safe and maybe make some smarter choices. Do you want to add, Kelly? Yes. Well, a common analogy that we tend to use, especially with DanSafe, is that Harm reduction is kind of the same type of instruction as putting on a condom if you're going to have sex. You're going to reduce the risk of unwanted pregnancy or spreading STI. So it's the same type of concept with harm reduction where if you're going to use a substance, there's risks associated with that substance use. How can you mitigate those consequences from using said substance. I love that analogy. The Safer Partying campaign really began to address the changes that we would like to see happen in festivals, concerts, and nightlife places. So it starts with one very simple goal, which is to stop stigmatizing people who choose to use drugs. Another goal is to promote harm reduction and accurate, honest drug education. Another goal is to amend legislation like the Rave Act that make festivals and concerts less safe for people to go to. And then the final fourth goal is to stop criminalizing partygoers, which is searches and other policies that really don't do anything to keep anyone safe. As far as Dance Safe is concerned, we typically tend to bring booths to 
festivals, nightlife kind of setups, clubs, raves, whatever parties where people are going to be socializing, drinking, using substances, that kind of thing. So we have a booth that will host a panel of drug and informational resources, you know, free condoms, free earplugs. People are able to purchase drug checking kits from us, or if we are allowed to, per the venue or the promoter's permission, we're able to do drug checking on site sometimes. A lot of people will come to us if they're anticipating on taking something, get it checked before ingesting it just to see, is there any MDMA in this supposed pill that I have, or is there any acid on this tablet that I, on this tab that I have? So that's kind of our primary function, is to set up these booths where people can have a direct line of peer-to-peer contact, giving them health and safety resources while they're at these events where they might be engaging in risky activities. Beyond that, we're trying to do more educational programs and things of that nature where we are doing college lectures and stuff like that. How did you two get involved in this field? What drew you to it? Oh man, I was a clubber, of course. It's a scene that I've participated in and love and like have done for many years. And I worked at a drug policy organization and we do a lot of work on you know marijuana policy and opiate overdose prevention stuff. And I noticed that there was a lack for people who are using drugs recreationally, mostly non-problematically. And being a part of that scene myself, I really wanted to have that be addressed. And so that was the impulse for me to start the Safer Partying campaign. So it's definitely advocacy goals, but it's because it's something that I love and I participate in. Similar story for myself. I started in the rave scene when I was a teenager, and I was actually straight edge first starting out. But once I started to dabble with alcohol and substances, it dawned on me that this doesn't feel the same every time. Like every time I have this pill or whatever, something is different about it or what's going on with this interaction? Am I doing something wrong? So I started just looking around online and actually came across ecstasydata.org, which is actually one of DanceSafe's projects that they fund in their DEA licensed lab where you can actually send in substances to be checked by a lab and uh, GCMS equipment that's able to analyze the drugs a lot more thoroughly than we can with presumptive testing. So once I found that site, I realized, wow, there's all these e-pills, some of which I think I might have ingested at some point in my lifetime, and there's different ingredients in them, and they're not always MDMA, so what is this stuff? So I just started, you know, I was always kind of a big nerd, so I just started Googling, Googling stuff. Realized that some of these things, there's not a lot of information on, some of these things aren't that pleasant, Some of these things are way more dangerous than the drugs I thought I was ingesting. And after a number of incidents between myself and friends of mine, some of which pass away from mishandling substances that they were using recreationally, like they, you know, were not addicted drug users. They would use it from time to time or experiment. That's kind of when it dawned on me that, okay, well, Dance Safe exists, but there's no presence here in New York. And I just took it upon myself to start it because no, I guess no one really wants to take on that kind of job sometimes. It's a lot of work. So I just started building up the presence myself, and it's been about three years now of leading that charge. You've both touched on some of the stigmas around recreational drug use. What are some of the biggest challenges that you both are seeing in this space? One tends to be that people think that there's a correlation between legality of a substance and safeness. Mm -hmm. And obviously we have different scheduling for different types of substances. And so sometimes when people aren't familiar, they're not educated on the drug itself, 
they might assume that, oh, well, I've been prescribed as Vicodin, and I found out that I can get high off as Vicodin, but you're doing LSD or MDMA or something that might be considered very dangerous because Mm. of media showing people being, I guess, really intoxicated and getting themselves into danger or whatever. That's not the case, obviously. I mean, if you could see that cannabis is Schedule 1 with heroin, clearly there's no correlation between the level of risk and danger between the two substances, especially when you take into consideration the route of administration. There's a quote that goes, the dose makes a poison. So a lot of people think that, oh, something is more dangerous because someone can die from it. Well, you can probably die from a lot of things. Mm. It just depends on how you take it and how much of it that you take. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's obviously that stigma that legality equates to safeness. And then there's also stigmas around just, uh, especially with MDMA users, there's the acronym PLUR, which in the rave community Mm -hmm. typically stands for peace, love, unity, respect. But it's gotten a bad association with the way that people look when they're rolling very hard, and now it's people look ugly rolling. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's not nice. And, you know, I've heard people being called e-tards and stuff like that, where they, they, you know, sort of these, this stigma attached to, oh, you're putting holes in your brain, and all this other information has been perpetuated that's clearly wrong, especially given the amount of research that's been done on these types Mm -hmm. of substances. You know, people think that, oh, you're just destroying your brain or whatever, which, depending on habits, yes, you are doing some damage, but to call people e-tards or, you know, make all these kind of assumptions about people's ability to be functional humans in society has gotten wrapped up in the choice of drugs that people use Mm -hmm. for recreation. If you're doing it once every couple of months... You're not a junkie of any sort or any of those negative terms that people associate with drug users. Mm. Yeah, I think Kelly picked up on one level of stigma that we all sort of acknowledge, which is within whatever scene you're in, people love to be like, oh, my drug use is okay, but yours, yours is not okay. And like it switches like whatever substance may, oh, I just go out and drink. So like, Mm. that's fine. Or like, oh, I just, you know, do pills. It's like, I'm happy here. Like everybody's got some kind of opinion and loves to judge you. You, All you need to do is look at internet comments to see that proven. Mm -hmm. So that's like one level of stigma that operates within our own community. But there's a different level of stigma where it's like you step outside of that and you talk to some people in quote unquote mainstream world. And they're like, oh, you go to those parties and like whether or not you use drugs, like they're going to point at you and that stigma is on you no matter what your personal choices are about drug use or alcohol use. So there's that level of stigma. And then when you get to the part of like wanting to throw these parties, then that's operating at a whole different kind of level where it's like you just want to show up and do something with music, artists, do something creative and getting those permits and getting permission from people can be a whole another level where it's like the stigma becomes like almost institutionalized where it's hard to like put on parties sometimes. So it operates at like a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. We're talking a lot about how there's a lack of resources and obviously there's no formal drug education. What are some of the things that festival goers and club goers can do to keep themselves safe if they were to choose to take recreational drugs? I think there's a lot of things. Like a lot of us just start out by talking to our friends Mm -hmm. about what's, you know, 
what's out there? Have they done it before? What do they know? Which is a good first step. But like a lot of times there's misinformation, even among your friend group, even if it's somebody who's been doing those substances before. So somebody who wants to be like really responsible, they'll do a fair amount of online research. There's some good sites out there like Airwood. Dansafe has information. My organization, Drug Policy Alliance, has information. It's good to get it from a lot of different places so you can get a good sense of what's real out there. Mm. And then hopefully you're going out to parties where Dansafe is on site and you can have a one-on-one conversation and get your questions answered by some people who are trained to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. I'd like to piggyback a little bit off of what Stephanie said, especially about some of the online resources. Mm -hmm. My personal favorite go-to is called Tripsit. Yeah, that's a good one. The, The reason why I like that one in particular is, well, one, they have a really nice app. So, you know, oh, so you can look at it on so the go you can, as well. Yeah, yeah so you can down, put it on your phone, the whole library of drug information, almost to the same degree, or maybe even to the same degree, if not more, just because it seems to be much more regularly kind of kept up with the Psychonaut Wiki and other resources that they kind of pull from online than Arrowhead because they're aggregating a lot of this information. It's available in app form. And no matter which substance you're looking up, it's just broken down in a very organized way of. This is what it does. It's a central nervous system, whatever, whatever, that is an analog of ketamine or however, you know, the little definition, it tells you like, you know, onset and all this stuff, the amount of time, you know, if it's insufflated or injected or oral and all these routes of administration, common dose, heavy dose for every single type of route of administration, a whole section full of the effects so it's like nausea or euphoria and all those things like a a whole bubble of keywords that are easy to digest and also it has sort of these scales of combinations are there risks with alcohol or benzos or you know other stimulants will have breakdown like this extremely dangerous with these type of substances there's some level of risk with these substances maybe no risk here or very low risk here and like kind of breaks it down into like a whole lot of very user-friendly categories that anybody could understand. I really like going to TripSip. As far as other things that people can do to protect themselves in nightlife, I mean, if they don't have the resources right there in front of them, whatever you have, even if you don't know what you have, just start with a small amount. If you have, say, a blotter, and you're like, well, is this LSD? I don't know, I haven't tested this. Start with half, start with less than that. Don't take the whole thing, or if you have three, definitely don't take three at once. You know, start with a low amount, see how you're feeling first, because you can always take more, but you can't take less. Once you're on that ride, you've just gotta ride it out sometimes, especially when it comes to things like psychedelics or something that has a really long life span. Yeah, there's a phrase that goes with that. It's start low, go slow, which is start with a low dose and just wait. Because it's like what Kelly has said, you can always add more, you can't really take it away. Yeah. Right. And same, especially with tablets, some of the presses that are going around these days, there's like 300 plus milligrams of MDMA in them. That's, you know, unless you're a very large person, that's kind of an obscene amount to take all at once. Sometimes take half that, take a quarter of that even, because if you're already ingesting 75 milligrams, you might be set for the night if you're Mm. a small person or maybe you haven't eaten anything and things of that nature. People can just start being cautious with the amount that they're taking. Dance Safe, as well as having booths at some events, you guys also sell 
pill testing kits that people can buy for themselves? Yes, we do typically have them on site. Not every event will allow us to have them, but the majority of the time we do have them on site for people to buy if the service itself is not available for people to have it done by one of our volunteers. Because also with the drug checking kits for people who might not have seen this process before, it's a set of chemicals that will essentially turn different shades of colors to indicate the presence of certain of these substances in whatever it is that they have. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a game of interpretation to some degree, and some people might not really understand that very well. So if someone who's experienced with that can do that for them, then that's even better. If not, we still have the tools available for them to do it themselves, which is also advised. Just keep a kid at home. They don't really have to hope that Dance Safe is somewhere. I think one thing to mention about drug checking or pill testing, as it's called, is that it will test for what's mostly present in a substance. So that doesn't mean that you've got something pure. And of course, as any good dance safe rep will tell you, like any drug use carries risk. Even if you feel like you know what it is, even if you feel like it's pure, it's still reason to be cautious. But for the drug checking kits that DanceSafe sells, it's important to know that that's just going to show you what's mostly present. It's not going to say anything about like purity or dose level of what you have. At booths, at festivals, what sorts of questions do you see people asking most frequently? It really depends on the type of festival and the demographic. For instance, you know, if we're doing like lightning in a bottle or a festival that has sort of a heavy Burning Man style crowd, a lot of them will come to us for a variety of things. But I noticed that with certain groups, some are more receptive to some of the safer sex tools that we have and information, like they'll take a lot of condoms. Anything that's around psychedelics, they'll maybe pick up more of those. Sometimes we're catering to a crowd that might be more of an alcohol crowd, and they won't really acknowledge as much of the drug information, but they will take a lot of earplugs or something that seems relevant to them. So we try to have resources for the majority of the main concerns of people who are engaging in those nightlife activities because not everyone's actually drinking or using substances. Some people are just there to enjoy the music, which is typically extremely loud. So people will come to us and grab earplugs. People who sometimes never would even consider wearing or buying earplugs, when they see that they are there for free, they're like, oh yeah, why not? I'm going to use these now. Or I've sent people to surf through the crowd sometimes and just like hand them out to people who are hugging the speakers and stuff like that. People ask us when they see the drug checking kit information, they ask us, what is this about? How does this work? What does this do? And then occasionally people will ask us, like we have a panel of different informational cards on a multitude of substances. If they see a substance there they don't recognize, they'll ask us about what that is. So those are the type of conversations we get a lot when they're new to a dance safe setup. Yeah, we do similar work. So Drug Policy Alliance is partnered with Insomniac to do this kind of like boothing and peer education space at a couple of their events. And we use some of the dance safe materials and these cards with all the different drugs. Like a lot of times people like they don't have a specific question. They're just coming up and being like, oh, yeah, I've done that one and that one. And what's this one? That's like kind of a natural conversation about like, oh, and what was your experience like? What did you learn from that? Were you with friends? Like it's really casual and, and really great. And most people walk away from those tables like they learned something or they had a good interaction and they feel like they're 
going to talk about it to their friends, which is like definitely one of the goals of having a space like that at a festival or a concert. To promote conversation in general. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the work that we do with Insomniac, we named the whole project Project Open Talk. For people who know production, that's like a radio channel where anybody can say anything on that channel. And that was kind of the idea behind having a space like this. Like whatever question you have, like whatever kind of conversation you have, we're here to have that conversation with you in a really like honest and authentic sort of way. Which Insomniac events will you be having booths at? For 2017, there's one coming up at the end of the month called Beyond Wonderland where Project Open Talk will be on site. And then we are also targeting to be at Middlelands, which is outside of Austin, Texas, camping festival. That'll be interesting. And then their big signature one, EDC Vegas. So those are the ones where we'll have Project Open Talk. I hope I see some folks there. What are some of the main issues that come up around safety at music festivals for the people who are putting them on? Well, you know, the whole goal for a festival producer is to reduce hospitalizations and to prevent deaths, no matter how they might occur. And so a large part of that is related to substance use, whether that's alcohol or other drugs. And so there's a lot of different strategies that they do, you know, the world being what it is and the laws being what they are. They still have zero tolerance policies and they still have to do searches at the gate and that sort of thing. What I'm trying to encourage through the Safer Partying campaign is to add on drug education spaces, like not just on-site booth type things, but to also use social media to reach their attendees. Because a lot of times a festival or concert is not necessarily the best place to give information. People are distracted. Hopefully they're having a good time. But you have that community, the people who follow the festival producer, whether it's a big company like Insomniac or something local. You have that audience sort of before and after the event. And so what I'm trying to encourage is to use social media at that time to direct them to resources that will include information that will help in terms of preparation or after the fact if something difficult or uncomfortable has happened that helps them integrate it or deal with it afterwards. How does America currently police drug use at nightlife events? Currently at nightlife events, drug use is policed much how it is outside of events. Drugs are illegal and they have cops on site. They have private security. They have undercover cops at most of these events. And their goal is to prevent drug use. You know, how strictly they are going to enforce or police on that is kind of like different from event to event. But certainly every event has to engage with making that happen. And that's a reality. The other thing that of course everybody likes to talk about and I think there's a lot of knowledge about, which is good, which is the RAVE Act. So this is legislation in the U.S. that was passed in 2003. It was originally aimed at the electronic music community, but it affects all genres of events. And it essentially holds the festival producer responsible for any drug use that happens at their event. And so the upshot of this is that it makes festival producers really scared to do anything that relates to drug use that isn't specifically like trying to prohibit it and stop it. Some of the festival producers come around, but they also have to deal with their lawyers. They also have to deal with getting event insurance. And so that's the challenge is that a law like that is out there hovering over everybody's head and making it really hard to do progressive things like get drug education and harm reduction services on site. So that's a federal law. Federal laws are really hard to change, takes a long time, and especially 
in this environment right now, which we could have a whole other kind of conversation <laughs> yeah. about about that. But let's just say that that's a definitely an uphill battle. But the other thing to know is that there are laws that are similar to the Rave Act that are state laws or city laws, and those are much more susceptible to being changed, especially when local communities get together and say, hey, we have this big festival in our area and we want all of this stuff to happen because we think it makes it safer. So that's kind of the goal, hopefully, going forward is to like not only just raise the knowledge about the Rave Act, but how that law may be replicated in local and state level spaces and hopefully get those changed. Some of the things that festivals or any nightlife related spaces could do as far as helping promote safety for their patrons Even with the Rave Act kind of looming over their head and making people scared to bring things like drug and alcohol harm reduction on site, I mean, it's simple stuff like having space for people to be able to cool down, somewhere to just sit, somewhere to like take a break from all the excitement that's going on, if they're too hot, whatever. You can overheat without drugs. There's been nights where I had to leave the club because I thought I was going to pass out. Mm. I was not on any substances. Well, just you're just because, tired from dancing. You, yeah, just, you just need to sit down because you're Yeah, you've old. been tired. <laughs> you're, you've been dancing all night. Maybe you were just maybe you were doing something all day that had dehydrated you prior to getting to the event. So, you know, there's all these other, like, existing conditions that could go into why someone could have a medical need or some kind of medical urgency while at a party. And it's not always around people using drugs. You know, even if there are substances involved, it could still be alcohol. So just being able to have water available also helps. And free water is not a crime. And I think even... It's a crime that it's not available at a freaking event. It's a crime that it's not (laughs) available. And I don't want to completely give the wrong information, but there's definitely a law, at least in New York State, that pertains to making sure that there is water available in certain types of venues, that there's free water available, I believe, in like restaurant or bar style venues, anywhere where there's like a running water source of mm. like potable water, like drinkable water, that it has to be available to the people occupying that space. Even if it's not like a big jug where people can go refill their own stuff, if I go up to the bartender, like, can I get a glass of water? They're not supposed to be able to deny that. Is the concern about water that if a festival were to provide free water, it's acknowledging that there are drugs present on the site? Why is it that festivals are concerned about having free water on site? That was definitely in the original text of the Rave Act. They had this finding section that really, it just was like describing all these things, some of which were like safety concerns, like having water available was like a sign that your event probably had drug use and was then a target of this law. So it does have that history, but I think a lot of actually what we deal with now in the current day is just being capitalist society and just being like, we want to sell bottles of water and that sort of thing. I know some international friends that I have, they're just like, how is it that you don't have free water at all your events like that's just standard in my country i'm like yeah yeah i wish that was the case and we're like 80 percent water so why is there not free water available (laughs) this isn't mexico we can drink what comes out of the faucet typically so yeah i think it does go along the lines of especially in new york city sometimes bottles of water are more than four bucks i've definitely paid like six dollars at a bar and i'm like really i'm pretty sure there's water behind the bar and I can't get a free glass. Are there certain states or cities that you'd say have more progressive local legislation 
when it comes to policing nightlife? I'm not sure about policing, but there are definitely some cities in the U.S. that have kind of a friendlier sort of relationship with nightlife industry and businesses and events. Like in San Francisco, they have an entertainment commission. So this is like a governmental entity, some of whom are appointed and some of whom I think are decided on from within that represent interests from the community and from nightlife industry and and government to sort of resolve issues and initiate campaigns where needed to sort of take care of issues that have arisen. So it's kind of a model that we want to see replicated in other cities because it really is the whole business and it raises a lot of money for the city that it's in. So it's like important to pay attention, not just for business reasons, but people go to cities because of nightlife. And so it's important to nurture it. So like having an entertainment commission like San Francisco does would be a benefit probably to any major city in the U.S. Seattle actually is really great about involving both industry and community players when it comes to talking about whether it's safety issues or anything else. I know that they hold a music safety summit every year. I've spoken at that. And there's a woman there who runs their office of film and music that is a fantastic advocate. Her name's Kate Becker. It's a lot of times it comes down to that. What are the structures in place in a city and who are the people behind them that are going to be advocates for good policy and bringing the community together around these issues? Isn't there a new piece of legislation in California which involves health and safety recommendations at all large music festivals? Yeah. Oh, boy. That's a fun story. Mm. Los Angeles. I used to live in Los Angeles. I love it. That's where I came up and got into the scene. But they are just a little bit nuts about how they handle festivals and concerts in that area. In 2010, actually... Following an insomniac event, there was this big outcry about we're going to ban raves and do this whole thing. And like, oh, we got a lot of pushback about that. Let's have like a task force and see what we should actually do. So this task force was really great, actually, run by the public health uh, entity, involved community groups, came up with all these health and safety recommendations that everybody agreed on, which is a miracle in itself. And then actually got to the point of putting out an ecstasy information card at some events They got a little bit of negative press and they shut it down and they didn't do anything else. So fast forward five years, another festival happens, another death happens, exactly the same thing. So now we're going to ban raves. Oh, we call them festivals now. So five years later, we're going to ban festivals. Okay, so we got the same process happening again. So they did another task force, a lot of the same community members, public health, law enforcement, medical representatives were part of it, came together with the same recommendations, even improved upon them. There were only a couple, in fact, that I couldn't sign off on from my position, which had to do with policing and drug dogs, which are not not a fan. But other than that, really great stuff. And this time around, they voted for them, they accepted them, and they just turned them into an ordinance. So there is some hope that in Los Angeles, there will be an opportunity to do some progressive stuff in that area. What are some of the recommendations? Well, they have them divided into categories, right? So there was a conversation around age. I think it was like they were going to make them 21 and up, but they ultimately decided to keep it at 18. They have a lot of recommendations around using signage and making sure capacity is held to. And the ones that are really important to us, I think, are that they 
encourage drug education and other services in the interest of safety. And so this only pertains to events that are 10,000 people or above. So it's only going to be like a few festivals or events that this applies to. But still, those are the ones with the most need. So that is where we hope that we can start to see some different kind of approach happen. On the same lines of legislation that promotes some of this harm reduction in nightlife is the Samaritan laws, which I guess are technically put in place for injection users and people who might experience overdose from the substances that they're using, but essentially can cover all drug users. If you're experiencing a medical emergency due to use of an illicit substance, states like New York, where this law is on the books, essentially you're able to call 911 without the fear of the consequence of, oh, there's still some in my pocket or you know, I gave this to this person or whatever the conditions were that this person took an illicit substance and now needs to go to the emergency room. You know, a lot of people either not call 911 out of fear of persecution or send somebody to the hospital but like kind of abandon them there, like not really give them information about the person or anything that would be useful in preserving their life in any sort of way, shape or form. Like what did they take, how much, at what time, things like that where, you know, for people who might be experiencing acute MDMA toxicity or something, those are the types of things that the physicians and people need to know. Mm -hmm. But there are 11 states? Oh no, I think it's like up to 20 at this point. 20? Okay, so then... I'll allow Stephanie to speak about that. Yeah, my organization actually advocated for laws in in many of those states. And I want to just say, like, it's they're important. They're sometimes flawed because they do have conditions and whatnot. A lot of times when I talk to festival producers where the party is happening in a state with a good Samaritan law, I'm like, hey, let your attendees know. Like, it's not just you being nice and say, hey, come to medical. We won't get you in trouble. That's backed up by law, you know. And so if you're in a state where that's true, that's a really good thing and a reassuring thing to know. I've also had conversations with festival producers just tearing their hair out and being like, why won't people just come to medical? We really don't want them to get in trouble. We just want everybody to be safe, like it's in everybody's interest. I'm like, you know what? It is kind of a crazy environment that you're asking people to walk into and trust you around drug laws. First of all, you search them at the door and you've got cops and drug dogs. And then you get inside and you're like, oh, but we're gonna give you some information. We're gonna give you Mm. services. We go to medical, you won't get in trouble. I mean, come on. This is a little bit crazy for people to like make sense of. And like, you know, so a lot of times I remind festival producers that it's just, it's not really sustainable in the long term, which is always my opportunity to talk about decriminalization which is to differentiate from legalization, where you set up a whole system where drugs are sold. Decriminalization kind of leaves that off to the side, but it does take away criminal penalties for possession. So if that were the case in a festival environment, all of a sudden you're not like having these invasive searches just for substances. When you have drug education, and you could even have drug checking on site without any problem, because all of a sudden now we're not worried about possession at all. So it really opens the door for education and safety in a lot of ways. And so that's my sort of way to have conversations around drug policy reform Mm -hmm. in communities where they're not used to hearing them, quite frankly. From a practical point of view, until we get to that kind of place, to be clear, it's still very important that if you or people that you're with are in danger because they've taken an 
illegal substance, it's still imperative that they go to medical. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think any festival producer will back that up. Like, they really want people to go to the service and, like, get the help that they need. Especially the medical teams themselves, they're not interested in busting you. They're not looking through your pockets. Like, they want to, like, save lives. And that is the benefit. You know, it's, it's it's actually kind of a privileged space because the reason Good Samaritan laws exist in the first place is that people who use drugs or inject drugs don't get that I don't know nice approach oftentimes so we do need the law to like protect them so that we can save lives but it is definitely the the case that in a festival absolutely go to medical go even if you think that you're not sure it's a problem they'd rather see you there smaller nightclubs and concert spaces are the issues that come up around safety at these places different they're not entirely different but i would say at least from sort of an anecdotal standpoint these smaller like nightclub type spaces and whatnot these local parties tend to suffer from overcrowding issues a lot more the venues are just not equipped for that a lot of times you know they're packing in hundreds, maybe thousands of people, depending on the place. You know, like I said before, there's nowhere to sit down because they'd rather maximize how many people they can cram in for the party, not have like a whole room dedicated for people to sit. And like, you know, that space is not being used in that way. In the club spaces, you're indoors. Maybe they don't have the most efficient AC. Sometimes there's no AC. Maybe there's a fan. Maybe it's not even on. Maybe it doesn't matter because there's a thousand people packed in there. Everyone's dancing and sweating and it's just buggy and it's hot and people are going to get dehydrated that way. Mm. And dehydration and overheating is particularly dangerous with MDMA, which can... Any stimulants. Yeah, which can maybe... Is that because it masks the feelings of dehydration you haven't really realized how that you're dehydrated what is the danger with stimulants and dehydration i want to get this right it's a very scientific thing but essentially i guess it kind of almost disables your brain's ability to activate its cooling systems like our our natural cooling systems so internally you start to burn out that happens especially with high doses of stimulants and mdma is a stimulant at the end of the day yes it's a euphorient stimulant, and it has a different effect than taking amphetamines, but from a pharmacological perspective, it still kind of does the same stuff. So for people who might even be using stuff like, you know, some people do use Adderall recreationally. Those are just amphetamines. People who might be using cocaine, those risks are st- those risks still persist where you might be at risk of overheating. You know, you're not. it suppresses your appetites. You're not going to have a desire to really eat or drink. And a lot of people will drink with it on top of that. So that's just furthering the risk of dehydration because alcohol is sort of a diuretic in ways. Caffeine is also in the same boat of being a stimulant, being a diuretic. You know, all these things in combination and then you're dancing for uh, six hours at a party or something in a hot club. I start seeing people, you know, pass out, you know, drop, whatever, have seizures. And I've seen it a lot. I haven't heard as, as, of as many deaths in nightclubs, but I've definitely seen hospitalizations in nightclubs, or at least emergencies where someone would then have to be taken out of the venue because now they're not functioning well in the space anymore. Yeah, I really want to underline one thing Kelly said, which is different with clubs and concerts, which is the alcohol use. I mean, that's a really big factor when you're talking about nightlife and that it's usually used in combination with other substances. And the other thing that's different, I think, about maybe not so much concerts, but definitely clubs, like 
you know, it's just your Friday night, it's your Saturday night in your regular town, like with your, your friends you usually go out with, I think people are a lot less conscious about like what they're doing. They make sort of more spur of the moment decisions. You know, it's just like not the type of space that encourages consciousness about what you're doing. It's easy to get comfortable and sort of like let down your guard about how much you've had or what you're combining with, or, you know, did you lose track of this friend or that friend? I think those are kind of particular dangers to like the club environment or risks, I suppose, in addition to overcrowding, which is definitely a club and a concert issue. A story we ran recently, some patrons of the club Flash Factory in Manhattan sued the establishment for sexual harassment on the part of the bodyguards. They alleged that they had been inappropriately groped by the security guards at the door during a pat-down. The suit was brought by a guy called Jonathan Corbett. He actually has previously brought lawsuits against the TSA for their use of body scanners. He and a friend had gone to Flash Factory to to a gig and they alleged that during the search it was inappropriately invasive and they said that they had been groped by the security guards. He said that he'd had his genitals touched and his female companion had her bra lifted up by the security guards. They told us in the news article that we ran that they very much felt that this was the club using its quote-unquote responsibility to keep drugs out of the venue as an excuse for invasive searching. It's a really interesting subject area to me because it's that very gray area of supposed safety, which is butting up against people's rights not to feel like they've been sexually harassed. And where do we draw the line between trying to keep something out on the on the grounds of safety versus what are we going to tolerate that's actually being done to us by a security guard. I think you're both familiar with the lawsuit and the situation. Shout out to John, who's a friend of mine. Um, You know, we all have stories of some club or festival where, you know, it really crossed the line. I feel like Kelly, like, posted something on Facebook. There was, like, a jillion comments about like everybody has that story and it really does beg the question of theoretically these searches are in our own interests for our own safety but if you feel violated then it's you know something is wrong there upholding drug laws is something that every festival owner club owner has to do but at the same time it is a problem and like a lot of times it comes into play where like they're hiring private security firms you can have very uneven sort of like training with those security firms about like how they do their searches I think the lawsuit is a great thing I think also a great thing is for people to get up and make some noise so that the club owner actually changes either their security firm or changes the way that they're doing stuff because they won't until people like raise their voices and say this is not okay. You know, as Stephanie mentioned, like I kind of asked my friends circles, like, have you ever had an overly aggressive search? And I've definitely had that happen in a number of different occasions, whether it was at a venue or at something more independently thrown where there was definitely like a private security firm hired. Lots of women especially came forth. A couple of guys came forth saying, yes, they touched my nipples or something that was like, wow, that's definitely over the line. Like, I didn't even know you could, can you hide drugs on your nipples? I don't know. That doesn't seem reasonable <laughs> at all. You know, and that's just, you know, it's, it's definitely crossing the line. And at the end of the day, how many 
things are being kept out of the club. You know, I understand that they feel like this is a way to screen patrons and hopefully keep the substances out that they think cause harm or, you know, are illegal so they just have to. But I'm not going to sit here and give up all the ways that you can get stuff into venues, but I've seen people do it. There's so many different ways to get stuff in, or are you just going to take all of it before you go inside? You've got about an hour, hour and a half of time before you hopefully, you know, hopefully you won't come up in the line. Hopefully the line's not that long, but I've seen that happen before. People are like, screw it, I'm using these drugs tonight because I'm trying to have fun. They're going to figure it out. They're going to find a way, and it's definitely not helpful to have people violating them or even making them feel pressured to have to ingest all their substances before they come across the security team, at which point maybe they've taken too much. Like all these steps we've been giving how to like be safer and like take into your own hands your own like personal safety and health. Well, if you don't even know what you have, you just took three hits of it. Yeah. Because you were trying to not get it, get it confiscated or get in trouble and be kicked out then well now there's just a bunch of stuff in your system that you know you're gonna have to hold on tight embrace you know hopefully this isn't gonna be disastrous and that kind of stuff happens a lot yeah it's a real case where the drug war is actually causing a more dangerous environment than if we had a different policy and there's resources out there so there's something i want people to know about we have, in the u.s there's a, a guy who goes by festival lawyer he gives out great tips about like how to manage a search whether it's at a festival or at a club and how to navigate that stuff so i definitely encourage people like look out for his tips. Private security firms are in a very gray area legally when it comes to confiscating drugs because they're not the police. Really the club's responsibility is to keep people safe so that means basically keeping weapons out of the venues. They're not really supposed to be there to confiscate the drugs and basically act as a police enforcement. Yeah, and people have stories too of being like, oh man, the security took me into this back room and like was like, oh, I'm going to call the cops. And then what it really was was like a shakedown and nobody knows where those substances ended up being. So it's like there isn't a lot of oversight. Private security firms are just as much of a problem as private prisons are, you know, and we need to like call that to attention for sure. One of the ways we try and get like a harm reduction thing in there and also sort of solve this problem is encourage the use of amnesty bins. So an amnesty bin is like, you know, suppose in the course of a search they discover substances. Ideally, they give you the option at that point, oh, we found something, you can surrender it to this amnesty bin and we all go our merry way or you know then we get the cops involved so it's it's a nice way to diffuse a situation where the club owner feels like they need to do Mm -hmm. these searches and be confiscating etc showing that they're following the existing laws but not victimizing the people that are coming out i definitely have seen in some cases that the security just go and resell them inside the venue so that's pretty sketchy so it's not like they're really trying to keep drugs out when you've got them just kind of capitalizing off of them harassing someone yeah, that's a story that I've definitely heard numerous times, which is that... Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. If you wanted to get drugs to the party, like, go to the security guard. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about from Dancing versus the State, please log on to our website at thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump 
or facebook.com slash thump thump. Stephanie and Kelly, where can we follow your work? For the people who really want to, you know, be involved in the advocacy side of things, I encourage them to go to the Safer Partying campaign page, which is www.drugpolicy.org slash musicfan and sign up for the emails. For people who feel really motivated and want to be a volunteer giving out this information, like for example at Project Open Talk, we especially need people in California, Vegas, and Texas. I work with a, another company called Health Nightlife, which is run by a woman named Missy Woldridge, and she is at Missy, M-I-S-S-I, at healthynightlife.com. So reach out to her to be a volunteer. And finally, I hope you will follow me on Twitter at MusicFanDPA. I want to differentiate that New York Dance Safe, we are, you know, kind of an individual entity. While we are under the umbrella of Dance Safe, we have our own social media and our own uh, ways of being contacted and whatnot. We have Twitter, and the handle is NY Dance Safe. That's D A N C E S A F E. Also on Instagram, it's NY Dance Safe. If you would like to email us, it's New York, and that's spelled out New York at dancesafe.org. In New York, we do actually have local test kit pickups. There's a lot of people who inquire about being able to get the drug checking kits, which typically are not available in any stores and you'd have to order them from an online retailer and then it gets shipped to you. For people who are in New York City, we do have a location in Brooklyn called the House of Kava and that's on Central Avenue. They can also find that on our website at newyorkdancesafe.org. For people who want to follow me on social media, because I talk about this stuff all the time, it's kind of my life. So if you want to like have a real nitty-gritty conversation around drug checking or drug use or whatever, uh, my handle for Instagram is playerrx, and that's P-L-U-R-R-X. I also wanted to let everybody know that next week at South by Southwest, Anna will actually be leading a panel on how to stop drug deaths at festivals. Anna, do you want to give us some details about it? Stephanie's actually going to be on the panel with me alongside some other very fantastic panelists. It's called How Do We Stop Drug Deaths at Music Festivals? And it's on the 16th of March at 2 p.m. So anybody who's going to be at South by Southwest should definitely come to our talk. If you can't make it, there will be a audio recording of it going up sometime after the festival. And our hashtag is party safer for anybody who can't be in Austin but wants to follow along as the panel goes on. Hope to see you there in Austin. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.